Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Dean Reuter and I'm the director of the Federalist Society's practice groups. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, this is our program on whether American businesses are a threat to American sovereignty, kind of uh, looking at the phenomenon of American businesses having received perhaps an unfavorable result here in American courts or venues, uh, taking their disputes abroad to foreign fora or international fora. Uh, and what the effects of that might have on American sovereignty or American interests. Uh, we've assembled a great uh, cast of characters here on our panel today, uh, panel of experts, um, and I want to thank them all in advance. Uh, I particularly I want to single out uh, Hugh Pate for uh, filling our fourth slot with Bert Four, who I, I would also like to uh, thank for appearing kind of on a last-minute basis as we began to discuss the specifics of this panel, we realized we didn't have the ideal balance we always strive for in the Federalist Society, but we were able to, uh, to uh, come out okay in the end. Our moderator, I want to thank in advance as well. Um, she is Lorraine Wallert. Uh, she is with Business Week magazine, where she has been for eight years covering legal affairs. Prior to that, uh, she worked at the Washington Times on a variety of topics uh, for six years. We're very pleased to have her here as our moderator today. Please help me welcome her. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just quickly introduce the panelists, although I'm sure you're, you know all of them well. Uh, Hugh Pate uh, is probably best known as the, he was the former AG for uh, antitrust before he went to, back to Hunt Williams to head the global competition practice group there. Next to him, we have Keith Hilton, professor of law at Boston University, who uh, recently had a textbook published. Well, gosh, 2003, I guess it was a little bit ago. The Antitrust Law, Economic Theory and Common Law Evolution, published by Cambridge. Bert Four, president of the American Antitrust Institute and former assistant director of the FTC Bureau of Competition. Bert, I'm going to plug your movie. Oh, Fair Fight in the Marketplace. It's appearing on some, uh, what, uh, public television stations across the country coming soon to a, a TV station near you. Thank you. You're welcome. And, of course, the Honorable Ron Cass, president of Cass & Associates, a consulting firm, and chairman of the nonprofit Center for the Rule of Law. Welcome, everyone. Hugh, I'd like to just start off with you. Why don't you kick it off with some opening comments? Okay. Thanks very much, Lorraine. I'll try and, and maybe set this up. Um, it seems clear that I've been asked to be on the panel because this question of um, companies seeking better results abroad than they could get in the U.S. Um, has been most visible in the antitrust sphere. And so in the past several years, um, we have had in the, in the antitrust community, um, if that's a term uh, we can use, uh, this debate about divergence and about the rise of um, other decision makers um, being heard um, on an equal footing with the U.S. authorities. And so um, I, I guess um, the first time this really came um, in recent times on, on everybody's radar w was with the Boeing-McDonnell-Douglas uh, uh, merger, um, uh, where the U.S. and the European Commission got to the brink of a disagreement about whether uh, that merger could proceed. And um, there were various government-to-government -government contacts involving the State Department, the executive branch, the antitrust agencies. And at the end of the day, there wasn't a divergence. Um, fast forward to 2001, um, the GE Honeywell merger 
came before both the U.S. antitrust agencies and the European Commission, and there you had a divergent result. And while the uh, Justice Department in the U.S. decided that um, it didn't have um, concerns about um, a combined GE Honeywell um, being a more effective competitor by having a bundle of products, um, um, for example, avionics combined with other aircraft components, um, including the component of financing um, for the purchase of some of the products that were being made. Well, this very thing that was seen to some extent as an efficiency in the U.S. was condemned by the European Commission as potentially um, giving the merged company an unfair ability to compete, if you will. And the Commission blocked that merger. And it was determined that there wasn't a remedy that would allow a different result in European markets from U.S. markets. And at the end of the day, the merger just didn't proceed. Um, there was no question that the two companies operated both in the U.S. and in Europe. So there couldn't be any credible case that a company was acting, a country was acting without um, jurisdiction or an authority acting without jurisdiction, but a very different policy result. Um, and then the last case, which really fits more with the description of this panel, the question of getting a result that a company doesn't like in the U.S. and then going abroad looking for a different one, um, really evokes the Microsoft case. Um, and as many of you know, the history there is that originally the, the FTC, as Alden Abbott would tell you, but then as the case um, got underway, the U.S. Justice Department investigated, brought a case against Microsoft for monopolization um, for the attempt to maintain a monopoly in the operating system um, at that time by preventing um, entry through the means of a web browser. Um, this case was litigated in U.S. courts. Um, there was a judgment um, calling for the breakup of Microsoft. Um, that was overturned by the D.C. Circuit. Um, the case uh, returned to justice for some intense negotiations. Um, many of our state attorneys general got involved, and a comprehensive settlement was reached with Microsoft, limiting its ability to engage in uh, tie-out contracting, uh, limiting its ability to make the Microsoft um, browser product the exclusive product or a product that would sort of kick off, kick out other competing products as a default. Um, all this had taken place with great effort, and at the same time there was a European investigation. Um, once again, in this case, a very divergent um, result has been reached, and currently pending before the European Court of First Instance um, is a decision um, one very much prompted by competitors of Microsoft who, unhappy with the U.S. decision, had gone to Europe, filed complaints there, um, and obtained from the European Commission a judgment that Microsoft shouldn't be allowed to bundle, in this case, as the case that evolved the, uh, the media player, shouldn't be able to bundle um, a media player together with the operating system. And so should have to design its product differently with fewer features in order to give smaller rivals more room to compete um, without facing an unfair advantage. Um, and likewise, uh, the, the European Commission ordered Microsoft to divulge um, certain types of intellectual property on the ground that refusing to license this intellectual property to other firms um, uh, created an unfair, anti-competitive, uh, monopolistic advantage. So 
I guess the, the point I wanted to make in opening the panel up is that I don't think we're necessarily here to talk about antitrust policy, whether these results are better in the U.S. or whether they're better in Europe. Um, we could talk about whether it makes sense to have antitrust lawyers designing technology products. Um, I have a point of view about that that my question may reveal um, and, and think it probably isn't a good idea. Um, but as I said, in each of these cases, the companies involved clearly operated within the jurisdiction of the government authority that was acting. And so to me, the, the more interesting question under the heading of does any of this undermine U.S. sovereignty um, is, is what to do in a situation where global um, economic actors are running into decision-making authorities in multiple jurisdictions. Um, at one level, regardless of which result you agree with, it just can't make a lot of sense for um, one national authority to undergo an extensive investigation, litigation, reach a result, um, and then have a second authority redo this and put um, the companies through um, very duplicative efforts. Um, and so under the heading of comity, um, you might suggest that the second authority should stand down. But, of course, um, when I was at the Justice Department and people called up and said, how can you let these Europeans get away with this? Um, you know, it can't be that American companies should be subject to having successive review by the Europeans. Uh, they're American companies, after all, or at least they're incorporated in the United States. What are you going to do about it? And, and the question I always had is, well, what exactly did you have in mind? Um, should I invade? Um, are, are we going to, uh, uh, you know, send uh, the FBI out? Uh, I, I just I'm not really sure um, what it is you would expect to do in this case. And there's not any ready mechanism um, if a disagreement is, is reached and can't be resolved. There isn't any ready mechanism to tell any government authority internationally um, that actually has the economic um, entities operating within its borders that it's not entitled to um, take an action to make a decision under its laws. After all, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, it was the U.S. who, through trade agreements and otherwise, went out persuading countries to put antitrust laws and authorities in place. Um, sort of not surprising that they will reach uh, different results sometimes. Um, in terms of extraterritoriality, um, it may be that there's a difference when the Europeans um, – actually um, order that products be developed in particular ways, not just for the European economic area, but also for U.S. markets. There's sort of rumor in the, in the antitrust mill um, that maybe as the European Commission has gotten more and more frustrated with Microsoft, um, it may issue orders that affect what products Microsoft um, can offer in the U.S., which would be an even more direct collision um, of the type we're talking about here. On the other hand, it may be useful to bear in mind that you don't need to turn the clock back very far for the U.S. to have been the um, government authority that was accused in the rest of the world as trying to behave in ways that had extraterritorial effects, that it was the U.S. that was being accused of trying to impose its antitrust preferences on the rest of the world. Um, in the field of cartel enforcement, there are many large economies who used to think that it was great industrial policy to get the major producers um, in a particular industry together and have them coordinate supply, output, 
um, innovation um, in order to serve national goals. And there were um, so-called blocking statutes in place in many jurisdictions that prevented um, American litigants from obtaining evidence in these countries, and then so-called anti-clawback statutes that um, provided that if an American litigant did get a judgment against a foreign firm for violating a U.S. notion of antitrust law that wasn't shared abroad, well, then there'd be a national law that would, that would claw that back and, and prevent um, any sort of collection of these, of these damages. Um, you know, so these, these, these disputes, once you divorce them from your antitrust policy preferences, um, tend to revolve around whose ox is being gored. Um, it raises uh, one last question, I guess. Um, should we move toward a situation where antitrust issues or other issues are decided by a world body? Would it be more orderly if the WTO did antitrust decision making? Um, you know, for me, um, it's very hard to um, have an opinion on that divorced from your policy preference about what role the government ought to be taking in the economy. You can tell from my remarks I'm very skeptical about the ability of the government to come in, at least as it relates to unilateral conduct by companies, and start trying to micromanage how friendly or how tough companies need to be when they compete with other companies. And to my mind, it would be better for government to leave that alone. Um, therefore, I reach the conclusion that if you look at the difference between U.S. policy on that point and policy in other parts of the world, um, that probably right now, um, if we put antitrust decision-making in the hands of a government body, um, we, people who like less government intervention, might not be very happy with what that body would produce. Um, and, and so... Um, um, you know, I think it's difficult to, to separate the substance um, from the process point. Um, are American businesses undermining American sovereignty? Well, I, I think that's, um, uh, you know, an unfair um, characterization, perhaps. It's, it's difficult to expect that multinational companies will do otherwise than seek a legal advantage in whichever jurisdiction they're operating in. And I think that's what... Um, uh, many of the, the complainants, for example, in the Microsoft case were doing, and it would be unrealistic to expect anything else. Um, does this undermine U.S. sovereignty? I think not directly, but I think the, the sovereignty, the ability of governments to be the final decision maker um, in general probably has eroded as larger, uh, more comprehensive corporations have operated in more and more countries at the same time. Um, as the interests of those companies um, becomes um, of greater interest to governments and governments are required to pay more attention to them um, across jurisdictions, the idea that any single governmental decision maker um, can impose a result in an economic dispute um, and have that stick and not be subject to a different result somewhere else, um, I think is growing more and more unrealistic. Um, that has some negative consequences, but I'm not sure I have any very insightful ideas about anything that can be done to change that direction. So I'll stop. Terrific. There. Thank Thanks you. Me. I appreciate that. Keith. Okay. Uh, well, Hugh has done such a great job in setting up the issues that at this stage, I think all I have to do is fill in footnotes to what he said. And maybe I can, I can do that pretty quickly. Um, there are two recent examples that are out there that uh, 
that I guess we should mention, uh, both of them involving Microsoft and probably offshoots to some extent of the Microsoft litigation. One is uh, the, the Microsoft-Adobe dispute that I'm sure people saw in the newspapers uh, in which Adobe uh, said that it uh, would file, uh, file a claim in the European Union over its dispute with Microsoft over uh, the pricing of the, the PDF uh, function in Microsoft Outlook. Um, another one is the more recent case in which the European Union, Union is threatening to fine Microsoft. Well, in fact, I think they fined Microsoft for um, providing code to help uh, the companies that are uh, making server software uh, allow their, their servers to operate more smoothly with Microsoft's uh, Windows operating system. So the American companies that are on the other side of that are, that are IBM, Sun, and Oracle. And so they're, they directly benefit from any effort uh, on the part of the, by the European Union to reduce the prices or the royalty rates that Microsoft wants to charge. And so there's, there's some suggestion that, uh, that those companies um, are on the, on the other side benefiting from the European Union's uh, actions in this case. Well, in both of those recent examples, uh, these are cases of American firms seeking something from the European Union that they really couldn't get from American courts. It would be very difficult uh, under current antitrust law, law doctrine to get a court to regulate prices or output decisions um, or design decisions. So that raises an interesting question. Um, uh, and this is where I guess we get into this question of sovereignty, though, though uh, as Hugh has suggested already, uh, to some extent this is just a matter of globalization and firms doing, uh, pursuing their, their self-interest in a globalized economy and in a, to some extent globalized legal structure. But in both of these examples, we have U.S. companies running over to a foreign regulator to get something or a foreign court to get something that they can't get in an American court. So an attempt to sort of import foreign law into the U.S., which does raise some troubling issues. Now, Hugh already mentioned the question of extraterritoriality in the U.S., and uh, to some extent, uh, it's, it's an, as he pointed out, it's an unrelated issue. It's not directly related to these recent cases, the, the Microsoft examples. On the other hand, there is some connection, and he was pointed that out already, that, that Europeans and people in other countries have complained for a while about our extraterritorial reach. Uh, and in particular, we have something called the effects doctrine that says that if uh, people are out there somewhere in the world and they've got a cartel, and that cartel is, is having effects on American consumers, then uh, we have a right to sue them uh, in American courts, which is a pretty expansive notion of the reach of our antitrust laws. And people have complained about that for a long time. So to some extent, uh, we have to recognize that, that our own laws uh, aren't perfect as far as uh, this question of undermining uh, other legal regimes uh, goes. And to some extent, uh, uh, making some change in our policy on, on extraterritoriality might be part of the solution. Well, um, the, uh, in, in the current issues, the, the Microsoft examples uh, that I just gave, um, what those cases point to are the stark differences between European Union antitrust law and American antitrust law. In the area of cartels, collusive practices, the differences aren't that great. There, there are some differences, but I, I would regard them as relatively minor. In the area of uh, monopolization, Section 2 of the, Sher of the Sherman Act, or what the Europeans call dominance law, there I st we see some very big differences. And Hugh touched on these briefly, and I'm just going to say a little bit, of more, little bit more about them quickly. 
Um, there's been a doctrine that American judges have uh, mentioned many times in American antitrust decisions, and they've said, we aren't authorized under the antitrust laws to act as public utility commissioners. We aren't in the position of regulating prices or profit levels of firms. Uh, neither are we in the, in the business of regulating output and desi design decisions. So these are, these are statements that you can find in many uh, antitrust opinions in American courts. And the European Union apparently has a different view. I mean, they, the, this notion that, uh, that it's improper to act as a public utility regulator, uh, the European Union, apparently, uh, the European Union's competition authority thinks that that's perfectly fine, that it's perfectly fine to operate as a public utility uh, commission. And so there's some major differences in monopolization law right now between the U.S. and the European Union. And I guess I'd point to three of the major differences uh, as, as follows. One is the question of, of the regulator's authority to oversee or review pricing and output decisions. Okay, that's an area that American judges have taken the position that, that that's just out of our reach. We're not going to tell you what prices to charge or how to design your products. Uh, there are few cases in America that have, that have come close to the line, maybe even crossed the line slightly. But for the most part, judges have been pretty faithful to that doctrine in American courts. Uh, American judges don't use the Sherman Act to regulate price and output decisions. Second area is price cutting. Uh, predatory pricing law is different uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. Here in, in the U.S., we have what's known as a recoupment test, which sets up a, a pretty high burden in the way of plaintiffs uh, and makes it difficult to, to sue companies when they charge low prices. We don't have the recoupment. They don't have the recoupment doctrine over in Europe, and so it makes it possible that the predatory pricing actions are, are, are a little more uh, have a lot more life in them over there than they have here. And the third major difference, I would say, is in an area that we that's known in antitrust law as the essential facilities doctrine, when some firm or group of firms controls access to some facility that's considered important to be able to compete in the marketplace. And uh, recently, American courts have taken a pretty hands-off view toward that. The Supreme Court in the Trinco decision um, uh, stepped away from forcing firms to share access to essential facilities, um, at least in, in the case in Trinco, and, and, and they suggested that the, that the decision had a, more, had a broader uh, application. Uh, and, and that notion, that conservative approach toward uh, requiring uh, sharing access, sharing or subsidizing rivals, that the, which has been rejected in, for the most part by American courts, I don't think the European Union has, uh, has taken that conservative approach. They, in other words, they, they embrace the notion that uh, a dominant firm can be forced to share access to some essential facility or, in a sense, subsidize rivals. So those are three major differences where European Union law differs from American law, and that's what sets up these incentives for American firms to run over to the European Union, seek a judgment that they can't get in American court. And, and that's especially true in the area of monopolization law. To some extent, it, I guess it would, it, it would bleed into merger law as well. So I want to say something quickly about the, the dangers of the situation that we have right now and say something very speculative about solutions, and then I'll, then I'll stop. Uh, so first, um, so the dangers are that, it, that the current situation uh, gives some pretty bad incentive effects to legal actors. Um, 
right now, it's Microsoft is the big example of uh, the American company that finds itself in, in front of the European Union Competition Authority and, and facing judgments that it would not have, would not get, would not find in American courts. But that can happen to it, it might happen to other American firms, and as that happens more and more, I would imagine that those firms will go to their representatives in Congress and say, you know what. Uh, we have a problem. The EU uh, makes it difficult for us to compete on the global stage, and, and they uh, force us to do things. They, they tell us that we can't do things that are perfectly legal under American law. You know, maybe we need some law that puts some constraints on them as well. Maybe we need something to sort of change this playing field or, or level the playing field. And so one danger is that it, it, it gives an incentive for American companies to seek to approach their representatives in Congress and look for tit-for-tat protectionist legislation. So the current divide over monopolization law could give rise to uh, new protectionist legislation here in the U.S., either in the form of new competition law statutes or in uh, directly protectionist legislation. The other danger is a kind of um, swimming in the wake of the European Union. It's an incentive for some other legal regimes to simply swim in the wake of the European Union so that if the European Union takes an aggressive or has, has extravagant notions of, of what monopolization law should require, that other foreign regimes will say, well, we should adopt the same things. Why? Well, a big company like Microsoft, uh, the European Union is going to force some pretty big costs on them. And those costs are going to have to be recouped by setting higher prices on the global market. So we're paying for the so they might say to themselves we're paying for the European Union's regulations already. Why not adopt those same regulations ourselves? Why not uh, step up and, and be just as interventionist as they are because we're paying for it anyway? So uh, so that kind of difference leads to a ratcheting up, a ratcheting up of interventionist regulatory policies under the guise of competition law, and 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 we've already seen that in the case of Korea's competition authority that's uh, taken almost the same approach to Microsoft as the European Union's uh, competition authority. So that leaves the question, what are the solutions? Are, and I don't know. Here it's just pure speculation. Uh, one solution is wait and see. Just wait and see what happens because um, the European Union competition authority has taken positions on the law that uh, may not necessarily be backed up by the European courts. Uh, some of the positions are novel uh, and it may take a few years to find out just how interventionist European Union law is. Maybe, maybe in the end the courts will cut back heavily on what the European Competition Authority wants to see. Maybe Microsoft will prevail in some of these, some of these cases, and maybe the European law will come closer to what American law is in the area of monopolization. So one, one solution is just wait and see. Uh, let the courts work this out. Another solution is, well, maybe there needs to be some kind of discussion between uh, trade representatives of these two areas. I, I, you know, we have a U.S. trade representative. I don't know what the person is supposed to do, but maybe that's a good thing for the person to do is to go talk to, uh, talk to uh, other trade representatives about something like this. Third solution uh, would be for the, the category of unilateral efforts to uh, – unilateral either on the part of the uh, legislature as a whole or – the individual American companies. And, and so I'll throw out two speculative, uh, two conjectures right now. So one is 
some version uh, of, say, a clawback statute, say, in the legislative level, some version of a clawback statute that that follows the principle of trying to prevent American firms from having to pay judgments or bear costs when they have adopted policies that are perfectly lawful under American law and for some reason, uh, and, and they run into a problem with, uh, a Europe, with a foreign competition authority. So some way to protect them from having to pay, from having to suffer unusual costs when they've done things that are perfectly lawful under American competition law. Another principle might be to force foreign jur- jurisdictions that have extravagant notions of dominance law to simply pay for those preferences. So uh, it, it could, one policy, it, would, it certainly falls in the area of protectionism, but protectionism is, it, protectionism is a clear risk of what we have right now. So uh, you could have something where, uh, like the anti-dumping legislation, where uh, tariffs are imposed on goods from the foreign jurisdiction, and the proceeds from that tariff are, are used for an American company to seek compensation or reimbursement for having to pay enormous fines or, bear, or suffer costs to comply with some uh, foreign demand for changing its policies. These are foreign demands that would be inconsistent with American law. So these are sort of extra, uh, sort of uh, you know uh, hyped up versions of a clawback statute that would protect American firms or, or maybe make these foreign jurisdictions pay for their own extravagant uh, regulatory preferences. And the other possibility, again, purely speculative, is that maybe, maybe the law already provides American firms a right of action when, it, when another uh, U.S. company runs over to a foreign jurisdiction. Because when, when, it, uh, when an American company runs over to a foreign jurisdiction, it's seeking a law that sort of doesn't have any basis in the U.S. Um, to some extent, it's sort of denying an American firm the protection of American laws. And so it seems to me, and for doing that for competitive purposes, so it seems to me that it seems to me that uh, you could bring an antitrust law. There's there there are there is the notion of, of sham uh, uh, sham lawsuits in the uh, American antitrust doctrine. Maybe that could be a basis for uh, lawsuits brought by private parties who have been subjected to this by by competitors. I'll stop there. Terrific. Thanks, Keith. I, I definitely want to follow up during the Q and A about your idea of um, paying for the preference. Bert, you're up. Thank you. That was President Bush on the phone. I tell him never to call me when I'm supposed to be speaking. Um, now, I know I'm supposed to be here to provide the, uh, the ballast from the left. Uh, it's, that's a little bit difficult to do, but uh, I come from the University of Chicago, just as Ron. We were classmates, along with uh, Doug Easterbrook and Frank, Doug Ginsburg and Frank Easterbrook and a number of other people uh, who have made their mark in the uh, antitrust field. I'm probably the only one that's made it from this side, though. Uh, the, um, uh, I'm not sure that uh, the difference between the Chicago school and post-Chicago, which is what I tend to represent, um, is really important uh, in, in most of what we're saying here. A lot of it is, is procedural and, and diplomatic uh, as opposed to substance, all those Keith said there are some substantive differences that uh, can be important. Um, I have a, a series of, of points that I'll just try to make. I'm not sure how they'll all relate one to the other. The first point is that um, there's really nothing new about shopping for a favorable jurisdiction. As, as Hugh said, 
uh, it's part of the competitive process. Uh, everybody is seeking competitive advantage. Uh, we forum shop in the United States, always have done so. It's not necessarily beautiful, but it's part of the, uh, it's part of the game. And uh, we're going to foreign shop, foreign forum shop in foreign jurisdictions to the extent that that can gain competitive advantage. A fact of life. Um, it's also a fact of life that uh, players, strategic players, are going to try to expand the playing field when they aren't succeeding uh, in, in, one, uh, in one forum. They're going to try to get other players into it, and uh, that's uh, old, old political science, basic political science that uh, a fellow named E.E. E. Schatzschneider uh, used to write about. Um, it may be that, there's, that they, American companies are, are trying to avoid weak enforcement in the, in the United States, but even if that were the case, there would be a lot of other reasons for them to uh, seek uh, advantages in foreign jurisdictions. Uh, remedies, for example. I mean, just to give you one example in the, in the cartel area, we now know that uh, uh, the penalties, the cumulative penalties for illegal cartel behavior, international behavior, even in the vitamins cartels, which were prosecuted civilly and criminally all over the world, more vigorously probably than any other, any other cartel in history. Huge civil uh, criminal fines, uh, people went to jail, uh, civil remedies, uh, in, in, uh, particularly in the U.S. and elsewhere. But when you total it all up and you look at what their monopoly profits were during the cartel period, and compare it to what they had to pay, uh, crime pays. Uh, it still pays. And so uh, if we're going to have enough deterrence to keep these from happening, uh, a remedy in the United States all by itself for an international cartel is ultimately just a cost of doing business, and it's not going to be enough to deter the behavior that I think we all think is bad. Um, now, uh, comedy, comedy is, uh, is always an interesting uh, question, but the point I want to make about it is that the comedy door swings in both directions. Um, example, if a foreign company operates here, and we will have more and more foreign companies operating here, which come from different backgrounds and have different values and different laws at home, we expect them to operate by our laws. And we're not going to stand by it if they violate our laws as we interpret our laws. We're going to punish them. We may put them in jail. We may uh, fine them. We may subject them to civil damages, which they wouldn't uh, be subjected to at home. And we're not going to give that away. That's part of our sovereignty. Nor should we expect other countries to give away uh, their sovereignty. Um, should we stand back and let the, uh, the first country to, uh, to investigate, uh, dominate the scene when there is an international, uh, uh, an international player has been accused of an antitrust violation? The current case that 
I think is the successor to the uh, various Microsoft cases, involves Intel and AMD. Now, AMD already got a settlement uh, in Japan. There is an investigation going on in Korea. Uh, we expect a uh, statement of objection from the European Union uh, any day. Don't know what it'll say, but let's say that it says that Intel is a, um, uh, a dominant player that has abused its position. Is, is Intel and will the United States stand back and say, okay, you know, let, let them work it out for the world? Uh-uh. It's not going to happen. Uh, and uh, I would say nor should it happen. These uh, cases, uh, like Microsoft case, I think it's important just to say, uh, are not necessarily identical in one jurisdiction and another. There may be different product markets. There may be different periods of time in which violations were occurring. Uh, there may be different uh, remedies coming out of it. Uh, do we want some degree of, of uh, harmony, some degree of cohesion? Yes, that would be ideal. Should we work toward it? Uh, yes, in certain ways. Um, I think that uh, the American involvement that you had a lot to do with in, uh, with the ICN, the International uh, Competition Network, uh, is exactly the right way to approach things, which is to say a lot of talking, a lot of sharing of information, sharing of best practices, even development of, of consensual best practices, but doing it uh, in, a, in a soft way rather than uh, trying to impose one nation's sovereignty on another, because, as Hugh says, if, if, if we tried to impose harmonization right now, it wouldn't be a harmonization that uh, Americans would, be, would generally be real comfortable with. Um, I might be more comfortable with uh, some of it uh, uh, on issues like predatory pricing and essential facility. These, uh, we, have a, uh, we have an establishment consensus, I would say, on those issues, but we don't have anywhere near a complete consensus within the antitrust community. And uh, uh, my organization is in some respects closer to the uh, European approach than, uh, than the American approach on a few of these issues. So uh, let's not get overwhelmed by the consensus. Let's not get overwhelmed by our ability to tell other countries that we know how to do it. They don't know how to do it. They don't understand economics. Uh, believe me, they do understand economics. The uh, European Commission investigated Microsoft for five years and uh, did it with, a, as far as I can tell, with a great deal of... Uh, of uh, understanding of, of what they were doing, uh, not to mention uh, all the times they listened to the United States tell them not to do it. Um, they're competent. Now, there are many other countries where the competence is lacking right now, and that's going to be a big issue. We've got about 100 company, countries doing uh, antitrust in one form or another, with China about to join in. And uh, each one brings its own culture, its own values, its own political system into the picture. They don't accept uh, Robert Bork or, uh, or Posner or any particular uh, exponent of any particular view. They're going to develop a view of their own. We need to try to convince them as much as possible by persuasion to, uh, to see some of the wisdom in our ways, but we should not expect 
that they're going to fall over and, uh, and uh, worship at the feet of our expertise. That ain't going to happen. Um, final point let me make is that uh, in addition to an expertise problem, not, not so much in, in uh, the European Union, but in many of the other countries that are now uh, playing in the game. You've got uh, related problems in their, their entire legal system. You've got corruption. Now, one of the interesting things about American antitrust, I think, is the dog that didn't bark. Why have we had so little corruption that we know about in our American antitrust tradition? There's so much at stake it would be not unreasonable to think that a little money would change hands and that a bad decision would come out. It has happened, but pretty rarely. Other countries don't share many of the aspects of our culture, uh, the independent judiciary, uh, the professional uh, staffs. Uh, it's, uh, there are cultural differences, there are political differences, and they're not going to go away. If we care about the sensibility, the sense, of, uh, the, the sense of the outcomes that are going to affect our country companies, then I think we need to focus on the bigger picture of of helping develop uh, systems that will function with uh, free markets within the context of the individual countries. And with basic antitrust principles. But these, the players, are going to need the support of peer groups around the world. They're going to have to be brought into a system with a lot of training. And we're not producing very much training these days, and it's not terribly effective. And it can't be proselytizing training, it's got to be uh, a training that recognizes. Uh, differences exist. But the training is essential. We could use a centralized facility for training or regional facilities. What we need is a major commitment to uh, helping other governments operate a, an antitrust system that's going to function in a, a reasonably workable manner. And uh, I think that is one of our uh, biggest challenges. It's something that uh, the multinational corporations uh, really ought to be aware of, and it's a boat uh, they could get onto to try to uh, help support uh, this, because everybody says, oh, that's a good idea. Nobody's willing to come up with the money to make it work. Um, let me stop there and see if uh, something controversial comes into my head as we proceed. Thank you, Bert. Ron, you can wrap it up for us. Well, I'm required by the rules of the Federalist Society to start with an anecdote. Um, we've been anecdote light this morning. Uh, this uh, story, which is a true story, involves a, a, a young woman, Sister Mary Catherine, who was admitted to an order where there were, among other vows, a, a vow of silence. And you can tell this is one of the differences between Catholics and Jews. I'm Jewish. We would never have any uh, system where there was a, a vow of silence. Uh, it would be wholly unenforceable. Uh, but Sister Mary Catherine, when she was uh, admitted, was explained that the rules of her order allowed her to speak two words every three years. 
She understood that. Three years went by. She went in to see the mother superior, and she said, hard bed. Mother superior said, we'll look into it. Three years later, she came back. She said to the mother superior, cold food. The mother superior said, we'll take care of it. Three years later, she was back before the mother superior for her two words. She said, I quit. (laughs) And the mother superior said, good riddance. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. (laughs) Well, I want to take my opportunity this morning to complain. Um, I I actually did like Hugh's suggestion of invading, uh, but we'll we'll put that aside for the moment. I, I actually find myself largely in sympathy with Keith's complaints, and I think there are several differences Uh, that we have to draw between sort of ordinary applications of domestic law and the sort of application that is being complained about today. Let me give a couple of examples here. You have a company that wants to sell automobiles in the United States. It's told it has to comply with U.S. auto safety standards. That's understandable. These are cars being sold to U.S. citizens. They affect their safety, the U.S. has a right to impose domestic safety standards, as does every country around the world. A second example, you have a Japanese cartel setting the prices of chips for export. And I'm talking about uh, computer chips, not potato chips. And the market for these chips is almost entirely the U.S., The U.S. says this cartel violates our law, even though the actions, the meetings took place in Tokyo. All of the effect of this cartel is visited on citizens of the United States. Again, we have a right, although it is in one sense an extraterritorial application of our antitrust laws, we have a sovereign right to protect ourselves against those sorts of effects. What's going on in the Microsoft case, in the AMD Intel case, in the cases that are being complained about today is something very different. It's U.S. firms competing with another U.S. firm. The U.S. firm they're competing with is doing very well in the market. They don't like that. They want a different structure to the market. They want something done to hold back that firm. They can't get it here. They keep going around the world searching for places they can get it, and ultimately there is, as Keith said, a sort of ratchet effect where you have a competitive market in restraining companies. Of course, the point that Hugh and Bert made, of course there is forum shopping naturally. Of course firms will take advantage of this. What do we do in our laws? We have legal doctrines that are designed to prevent forum shopping. We have rules of collateral estoppel and race judicata about which jurisdiction is the appropriate jurisdiction to exercise authority over any given matter. Why do we have those? Very simple. Because the rule of law depends on it. It depends on stable, predictable, certain rules. We know what rules will apply to our behavior. If your rules, your your behavior, were subject to a series of different rules, You're taken, you you decide to enter into a contract, you write the contract, you think you know what rules will apply to you because you're writing it in the District of Columbia with two people who are resident in the District of Columbia. You are sued by somebody on the contract. They lose because it didn't violate D.C. rules. So they then sue in Maryland, Virginia, Arkansas, West Virginia, around until they find a place where they can succeed. We don't allow that. Because that leaves you at constant risk. It doesn't allow you to engage in 
the sort of ordinary transactions we want you to engage in, knowing what the rules will be. Under the current sort of forum shopping that's going on, when IBM can't get the result it wants in the U.S., it goes to Europe, to Korea, to Japan. When AMD can't get the result it wants in the U.S., it does the same thing. That will lead to a situation where the rule of law that companies think they know and understand when they set their business practices is always in flux. It's always going to be changing, and the incentive is to keep going around the world till you find the right place. When we talk about what the European Union is doing, we talk about the EU regulators. The EU regulators are, of course, in the competition authority, and to Keith's point, the trade authority is on a different page uh, in the uh, EU than the uh, competition authority is. The competition authority is, of course, doing what they think is right. They are being pushed aggressively aided, abetted by very well-financed folks who are being financed by competitors of Microsoft. They're being financed because they can't get the same result here they want, so they're going abroad. They're trying to make the result they want to happen here happen there, even though the primary location of the businesses is here, the primary activity takes place here, the primary setting in which the competition occurs is here, they still are going to go around the world till they can get the result they want. They're also, in addition to the problems of forum shopping, the process problems, the bad effects on the rule of law, we do have a separate problem in the cases that Keith was talking about, that he was talking about, and that Bert was talking about, because, in fact, the rules being followed in other jurisdictions don't make the same economic sense as the rules that we have evolved here. If you look at the Microsoft case, look at some of the claims that were brought initially here. Among the claims that were brought was that Microsoft violated the law by failing to have every contract with every computer maker expire at the same moment. Why did that violate the law? Because it put rivals at extra expense to have to persuade people to use their product while everybody else was using Microsoft. If everything expired at the same time, that would be better. Although, of course, the same theory would tell you if everything expired at the same time, that would also raise rivals' costs because they'd have to compete for everybody's business at once. A lot of the claims that were brought in the U.S. simply didn't make economic sense. They were simply whatever was a handy argument that could be put together to try to restrain a rival. The same thing is happening in the EU. When we say they have different rules on tying and interoperability, they do. They have different rules. They are rules that make less sense. The reason why our tying law has evolved in the way it has here is the courts recognize that tying is a practice that occurs ubiquitously. People with no market power tie products. When you buy shoes with shoelaces, you don't have to buy the shoelaces separately, even though they can be separated. There is a separate market for them. It's more convenient for customers to buy them together. That's why they're sold in packages. A lot of the activity of Microsoft that is being challenged and has been found to violate EU law, although, as Hugh says, subject to what the courts say, uh, and the courts may very well overturn that ruling, a lot of that conduct is economically sensible conduct. It's ordinary business conduct. It's ordinary business competition. Why complain about it? Because we're dealing with a market that has strong network effects. A lot of us use the same 
products because it's easier to use them. We can build on those platforms. We know how to use them. We can go from computer to computer without a lot of extra learning. That gives a real incentive for a lot of us to use a single set of products, but we shouldn't expect the person selling those products to stop trying to improve them, to stop trying them to make them work in ways that is advantageous to us. That's what Microsoft's competitors are asking. That's what the European Union is now saying it must do. They are getting into product design. They are getting into aspects of ordinary business decision-making that regulators have no advantage of. And some of the objection is, in fact, not simply because of the ill effects on the rule of law, not simply because it interferes with America's ability to have our laws govern competition among our firms, but also because the results that are being reached in Europe and Korea and Japan are simply less economically sensible, less sensible in terms of the impact on business around the world. As to the what to do about it, uh, I, I do want to talk to Hugh later. I do want to work on this invasion idea. I think it, it's one we shouldn't reject out of hand. And uh, you know, I hope we'll have an opportunity to explore it later. Uh, I just want to make sure that we all take this opportunity to complain as much as possible. There's no point in being here if we can't do that. Thank you. Terrific, Ron. Thank you. Uh, we do have some time for questions. There is a microphone going around, and they ask you to talk into that so we can catch you on film and put this online. Um, I'll just open it up while you all get your thoughts together. You know, Ron, in fact, forum shopping goes on all the time in the United States, as I'm sure any um, plaintiff lawyer obsessed corporation will tell you, uh, targeted corporation will tell you. Um, and so it seems to me that we're, we're in a situation where, you know, business has um, asked for globalism. Now we have it. Foreign countries are starting to take a page from our book um, by adopting um, antitrust policies. We just have to wait for this all to sort of mature and work itself out. I mean, we're getting businesses getting what it's asked for, right? Well, business is getting some businesses are getting what they ask for. Other businesses are getting the business. <laughs> um, IBM clearly found out when it was sued by the Department of Justice. Uh, that it really is frustrating, distracting. They, they missed out. They made a very bad decision on what to do about the PC market. They decided software didn't matter, hardware did for that market. They found out later that wasn't quite right. They were distracted at the time by antitrust litigation. Uh, the, the antitrust uh, recipient is somebody who's going to be embroiled in, in a business that will not help them conduct their primary sort of business. So while IBM now realizes it's a good thing to distract Microsoft with litigation, this isn't something we should wish on others. We should have rules, and we do have rules here that try to limit forum shopping. You mentioned the, the plaintiff's bar. There is an ability to forum shop to some extent. Uh, something like the Gore against BMW case illustrates that. But we are evolving rules here that try to address and limit that. We shouldn't embrace it and say, you know, I've got a cut on my left arm. I should have a bigger cut on my right arm because it would match very well. I, I think we're better off trying to avoid this sort of problem and, and the sort of impact on the rule of law we get from forum shopping. Okay. Any questions out there? We have a number of law professors, so if you don't ask us <laughs> questions, we'll ask you questions. <laughs> I, 
have a question for you, Pate, or anybody else on the panel, and, and that is, are there any federal government efforts uh, to help other countries, developing countries, or any other countries with their development of antitrust law? Uh, and, and if there are or if there aren't, do they come out of USAID, the State Department, or uh, across agencies? Sure, there are. And, you know, I think um, the fact that invade is sort of a flippant comment leaves me with the idea that things like the ICN that Bert mentioned are probably the best you can do, right? And so there is USAID money to provide training. There are different uh, meetings where antitrust officials – um, share ideas. And at the end of the day, the thing that um, the U.S. approach has going for it um, is the idea that only objective economic standards are going to make antitrust um, law in a meaningful sense that's reviewable by judges. And so if we can do that, and if courts begin to police the agencies, as perhaps the court of first instance will with the European Commission, then they will evolve perhaps toward an antitrust law that's more based on objective economics, on the idea that you shouldn't punish somebody for cutting prices um, on the theory that you can predict a few years in the future those price cuts will drive competitors out and put the price cutter in a position to recoup, as, as Keith mentioned, to, to, to take the legal test to recoup those losses um, and take advantage of market power. You know, economics would tell you it's very hard to make a rigorous showing like that. And the U.S. on that basis says we'll be relatively non-interventionist in that area. area. And, and remember, it's taken us a long time to get there. In the 1960s, the U.S. Supreme Court was blocking mergers that resulted in two, four, six percent market shares of the merged companies. Um, predatory pricing was a type of claim that could pretty easily be brought. Fortunately, that was really before the tort explosion, you know, that we've had. So, um, you know, I, I really think trying to make the merits of this less interventionist approach um, speak for themselves is, is about all we have um, to go on. Remember also, to Bert's point, how um, foreign actors see us. They look at our tort system, which is rampantly out of control and where companies can be sued and get one result in Mississippi and another result in Texas. Um, and they ask, well, you know, what are you Americans going to do about this situation where on a completely unpredictable basis our companies who choose to participate in U.S. markets are subject to this wacky tort system? Now, on the antitrust side, um, the Europeans have drawn the conclusion that um, maybe they should follow America and have more litigation in Europe. Um, so I, I don't know what, what lesson they're drawing in every sphere, but um, – you know, I, I think what you're saying may be really the best hope that any of this um, uh, can be improved. If, if vague standards are left in place, to pick up another point that's been made, um, to the extent um, vague standardless decision-making remains um, the order of the day or is the order of a day in a new country that's getting into the antitrust business, um, corruption likes nothing better um, than a vague, amorphous standard under which the government should make a decision. So Bert, uh, that's a long-winded answer. Rebuttal? <laughs> no, not a, not a rebuttal. I want to uh, go a little further with uh, what Hugh was saying. Uh, I kept coming back to culture, cultural differences. Let's take the question of predatory pricing or of, of GE Honeywell, where I think there were a couple of differences that, that 
have cultural uh, roots that we have to recognize. Number one, in Europe, there is a long history of government getting far more respect than it does in the United States. That is, people are, are used to being more dependent on government, and they have a lot of respect for government, much more so than, than we generally do here. Um, secondly, that allows government to make longer-range predictions that the public will have some confidence in. Here, we're very worried about predictions that go beyond a year or two at most in our antitrust. Uh, anything beyond that is called mere speculation, and we dismiss it. Now, part of the reason for that is that our antitrust decisions are made in the context of litigation. What can I prove to a court? And what you can prove about the future is very limited. Now, if you've got an administrative background, and all you have to do is have a consensus within your government that something is more likely than something else, it's easier to make a prediction and to work on the basis of that prediction. So what I'm saying is there's some very deep and penetrating cultural differences that help to explain why countries come out in different ways on some of these doctrines, and that uh, we've got to be understanding of these. Any questions from the audience? While we're waiting, I want to disagree. The, you know, I, I think it's one thing to say that uh, we have uh, difficulty making predictions here. We don't trust them here. We have uh, an easier time elsewhere. I think it was the great American philosopher, Yogi Berra, uh, who said that it's getting more and more uh, difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, but our, our history in antitrust shows we do have a great deal of difficulty making predictions. Uh, when we brought, uh, when, when the government brought the IBM case, it thought that mainframes would dominate computing out into the far distant future. Uh, when we brought the uh, AT&T case, we thought that there was no such thing as a cellular telephony or anything that would dent uh, AT&T's monopoly over telephony. And at the same time, uh, if I recall correctly, the Justice Department was contemplating bringing another case that it decided didn't have the manpower for, which was against GM because imports would never be a factor in the uh, U.S. car market. Um, in difficulty making predictions? Absolutely. We have a lot of difficulty doing that. Uh, in Europe, and, and this is a, a disagreement with you, in Europe and a lot of other parts of the world, the problem isn't that they're better predictors. The problem is that they have an incentive to make a different prediction. Uh, the reason why we can't count on moral suasion and example to bring us to a better end is because a lot of these regulators around the world are protecting their domestic businesses. They're protecting national champions. They're doing it under the guise of implementing antitrust rules. They're doing it at, at some points uh, under the uh, uh, suasion of U.S. firms that are competing as well, but they are protecting their local markets. When uh, Bert references Elmer Schatzneider, uh, E. Schatzneider gave us an explanation for why it is that what is economically sensible for the citizens won't be the outcome that politics gives you. So I, I think we have to be, you know, as much as we would like to think that others will evolve in the right direction, they'll only do so 
as the political climate mirrors what is going to be good for their leading businesses. I got to say, that was really good, Ron. <laughs> who, I didn't think anybody knew who Chad Schneider was. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know that I, I necessarily disagree. I think it's very clear that different cultural views and, and um, maybe not in a pure protectionist sense, but different attitudes about what the economy ought to look like inform um, competition. I mean, take... Um, one thing that I've asked people to do when they visit Paris, take the Paris drugstore test. Um, go in Paris and see if with any, within any 300-yard space you are unable to see a small pharmacy, right? Um, it's not by accident that there's a small pharmacy every 300 yards in Paris and that, you know, here um, you have a smaller number of larger shops um, that may have a full line of goods, whereas in Paris you may need to go get your decongestant in a separate pill for your, from your antihistamine, and, and, and there are these, these sort of small um, shopkeeper protection provisions. They just have a different judgment about how things um, ought to be run. I mean, I, I have um, very strong opinions that a less interventionist approach is likely to produce um, better economic output, Maybe they just think other things are more important. So I don't disagree with it. I just think, again, um, um, unless um, you're serious about invading, I just don't know what the alternative enforcement mechanism is to going to try to persuade other authorities that they would really be better off. Um, I'm not sanguine about that working. I just don't see a superior alternative to well, it. Well, this issue, we've, we've all heard um, about Microsoft butting heads with the EU. That's been out there for years. Um, why is this issue starting to bubble up beyond that? Is this being driven mostly by China, Korea? What is, you know, China's um, plans to, to get into this? Or well, the Asian authorities are getting more active, right. but China is right now in the process of passing um, an antitrust law. But look, the, the big thing here, you need to bear in mind, this is not a question of foreign governments simply reaching out and imposing their will on American companies. The nature of the power they have is that um, multinational companies desire access to their markets because there are a lot of potential customers there. That's why China is so important. The concern I have with respect to China, though, is if the European Commission, by taking a relatively anti-intellectual property approach um, in its dealings with Microsoft, for example, um, legitimizes China disrespecting intellectual property, fairly readily finding um, anti-competitive behavior and using that as a basis to deny enforcement of intellectual property, um, where does that leave economies that depend on innovation? We're not going to be very competitive with China in manufacturing shoes. Um, our advantage lies in innovation. And the interesting thing is that Europe's does too. Um, so I, I think that's the sort of conversation we need to have to pursue Ron's view. They need to understand why it's in their own interest not to legitimize vague and amorphous interventionist antitrust. Okay. We have a, a question in the back. Uh, my question stemmed from uh, Mr. Hilton, Mr. Hilton's comment um, about the sort of tit-for-tat ratcheting up that could result um, where domestically we, uh, we, I think you used the example of impose anti-dumping or countervailing duty determinations, which is itself a sovereign decision. Um, the paradigm that you guys were talking about was 
um, private firms trying to use different legal regimes to gain market advantage. But it could also be the case that, that these other legal regimes, be it through NAFTA or the WTO, could be used to challenge the sovereign decisions of the Department of Commerce to impose those uh, countervailing duty determinations. Do you have any observations about um, the use of these other legal regimes outside of U.S. courts and the, those threats to U.S. sovereignty? Well, I think you, you mentioned this, that it, to the extent that we have uh, competition law developing in a lot of different places, maybe this does need to be a matter of, of uh, international trade discussions. Maybe it does need to be something within the WTO framework because uh, the problem is, is likely to become, uh, if anything, more serious over time. Uh, Bird mentioned that there, what, we have something like 100 competition statutes around the world right now. Um, so the problems that we're seeing between the U.S. and the EU are uh, maybe relatively minor compared to what's in our, when our, what's in our future. And so that may have to become something uh, within the WTO framework in the long run. I don't know if anyone has a different, uh, different view on that. I, you know, in keeping with the theme that uh, there's many ways to seek competitive advantage, uh, you've got to look at what the ramifications might be if countries start operating this way. Well, one, one thing is a country has many different ways to exercise uh, influence on another country. Trade policies are one. Diplomacy is another. Uh, what we have to be careful about uh, in particular here is that we don't uh, take on national champions and put the government in the position of carrying the water for a particular company. Uh, which has been perceived to be the case sometimes. Um, rather, the government uh, has to keep its positions on an objective level, uh, talking about the rule of law, talking about policy overall, but uh, being very careful about not adopting a national champion. Now, one of the interesting things in a lot of these debates, and I, here I, I differ with Ron a little, um, Typically, in the, in, the, in the three or four big issues we've focused on where the U.S. and Europe have been at odds, um, Europe didn't really have a dog in the race. It was American companies, and uh, Europe had a dog in the race in terms of how it would view the industry and the future of the industry, but didn't really care, didn't have a good reason to care as far as I know which American company would come out uh, ahead in the result? Well, I do think there is a, a widely shared perception, I think an accurate perception, that uh, Europe would not be pursuing the case against Microsoft as aggressively as, as it is if Microsoft were a French company instead of a U.S. company. Uh, the fact that this field is dominated by an American company lends a flavor to the proceedings in Europe that is difficult to separate out from the principles of antitrust law. Um, when Hugh talks about the implications of, of IP rights, this is another area where we have to be very careful. One of the remedies that Europe is imposing is a broad-scale, uncompensated, forced disclosure of intellectual property. If someone says... I'm going to force you to disclose your trade secrets in Europe. Now, I'm not going to force you to do it in the U.S. Um, once it's out, it's out. Right. Once the intellectual property is released, you can't get it back. 
And so the decisions that are being made in other countries have a definite impact on the business in the United States. And as you get from the U.S. to the EU to Japan to Korea to China to other places, you get to places that have less and less regard for intellectual property rights. So that if those places are able, under the guise of competition law, to force the invasion of intellectual property rights there, the whole international regime for protecting these rights is at peril. And that will hurt uh, not only U.S. companies, but business and consumers around the world. Bert, did you have a response? A quick uh, quote from one of our Chicago classmates in the D.C. Circuit uh, Microsoft Appeal. Uh, talking about intellectual property rights, said um, just because you own a baseball bat doesn't mean you have the right to hit people over the head with it. I think that's an important uh, analogy to keep in mind here. Terrific. Any other, uh, any other questions from the audience? All right. Any last words from the panelists? I, I just do want to get together with you later on the invasion. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, everyone. We really appreciate it. Thanks to all of you. It was very, very enlightening.